everything should work. So today we're going to cover mostly uh, conformity processes, and then we'll cover a little bit of obedience. Um, what does it mean to conform your behavior? Good. And so, uh, with whom do you conform? You conform with your peers, people you want to be with. Who else? What's that? Authority. Authority figures, family members. People who are around you. People who are around you. Your what we call your social environment. These are all part of your, these people are all part of your social environment. And so we have these kind of um, drives. I'll say they're, they're, they're very much motivations. Remember when we talked about motivation, one of the motivations that has to do with wanting to be around people is the, the what? The need for affiliation or the affiliation motive, yeah. And so these are uh, very basic needs that we have to be around people in our social environment. Now, what happens when someone, another, another uh, drug deal, okay, uh, glad you're getting rich, here we start sharing that money with us though. Um, so, so, uh, so we have this need to want to be around other people. Now what happens if uh, we are around other people, and we behave. We uh, we uh, we behave in ways that are very um, undesirable or unlikable. They don't want to be around you, and so they shun you. Right? They ostracize you. Ostracization is one of the most um, powerful tools for bringing people's behavior back into the line. Right? If, you know, you don't dress like us, you can't be in our group, right? High school, right? Um, what's this movie? Uh, I love this movie. Um, it's a, uh, it redoes Emma uh, with Alicia Silverstone. Clueless, right? Yeah. So, um, so these are very powerful influences that really drive our behavior to conform uh, to other people. And so one of the things, one of the, one of the ways that we know how to behave in a conforming manner so that we don't get ostracized is that we have roles in society that we fill and there are norms associated with those roles. So what do I mean by uh, a social norm? Good. So what's normal, right? So it, it is um, a really a set of rules that kind of tell us um, an unwritten, usually an unwritten set of rules um, that tell us what is acceptable behavior in this social situation. So we get information about that from a number of different places. We get it from other people, right? If we start acting funny, they kind of look at us or 
Maybe they call the police, right, to have us taken away, right? Or the men in the white jackets, right? White coats. And, uh, but also the environment, right? You come into a classroom, you know, uh, the first day of class, you came into this classroom. You didn't know any of these people. And, but the broom itself, it, it, uh, it communicates to you that there are going to be certain norms here depending on your role. Your role as a student is to sit down and um, learn from me as I pontificate all of the uh, you know, complexities of human behavior to you. And my role as an instructor is to try to pontificate to you in a meaningful, hopefully, way that, um, about, about behavior and, and these rules. So, so this room kind of communicates some of that. When you go into a club, when you go into a club, you know, a dance club, that's an environment where the norms are entirely different than they are here, right? Um, so, so these norms are communicated somewhat by the physical environment, definitely by the people. Um, you come in here the first day of class, you know, a bunch of other people are sitting here quietly. You come in and start... Um, you know, start spouting off about how great the Indians are at baseball and um, how you can't wait till they beat the Red Sox. And, you know, you do this long enough, people are going to start like, what's up? What's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> now, if you sat down and started talking about how the Red Sox were great and they were going to beat the Indians, everybody would go, oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. So, so this, so... You, you know, you come in here and you sit down quietly, you wait for the instructor, that's normed behavior. You're in your, you're in your social role and you're behaving in normal ways. Um, and so these roles are really um, these sets of expected behaviors that we have based on what our role is. So. You might be, for example, a mother. And being a mother has a social role. If you do not fulfill your social role, people will start telling you about it, right? Those of you who are parents. You know, maybe it's your, your mother-in-law, right? Or maybe it's your neighbor. Or maybe it's the police, right? What do you mean you left your kid at the park overnight, right? They're going to take you away, right? And then that's like criminal, right? So social, so social roles are communicated and enforced by culture and society, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and the alternative would be if you, instead of leaving your child in the um, buggy, is that what you said? <laughs> is that like a, like a cat buggy? I take my cat around in the cat buggy. You leave your child in the buggy outside the restaurant. That's normal in Switzerland. But... But <laughs> if you were in Switzerland and you brought your child inside, they would go, well, you're such a bad parent, right? 
So these roles we have, and we fill these roles, and we're happy to fill them. We feel oftentimes really good when we perform our role appropriately. Even though that may not really be what we want to do, but because we've taken on that role voluntarily, or sometimes involuntarily, and we get this positive reinforcement from people when we do behave in that role, we feel good about it. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we feel constrained. Big boys don't cry, right? Um, and so, uh, so these roles and norms have both beneficial and deleterious consequences, unpleasant consequences. So, um, but it's important to know that our attitudes toward ourselves can oftentimes be affected strongly by these roles and whether we do or don't fill them properly. And then, of course, we look at other people um, in very, you know, we, we expect them to fill their roles, and if they don't, we tell them, sometimes very blatantly, sometimes very subtly, um, usually very subtly. You know, we'll give a weird look at somebody, right? We don't just snap their head off immediately. But if they persist, you know, we'll increase the pressure to try to bring their behavior back into, into line. Um, so really, these roles, they're established by culture and society. We take them on either voluntarily or involuntarily, and then ultimately they are conditioned. We're operantly conditioned to uh, stay in that role, um, assuming other people want us to. Now this becomes a bit of a problem when we think about, for example, uh, family systems. And when we talk about uh, psychological disorders, we'll talk about family systems theory. Family systems theory says that families have these roles that we fulfill for each other. And one of those roles can sometimes be um, like the, the screw-up, the kid who never does anything right. And then when the kid who never does anything right finally gets their act together, guess what? Everybody else says, you know, subtly or, or, or not so subtly, tries to get that kid to screw up again, right? So, um, so this kind of family dynamics can sometimes force us to behave in ways that are maybe not so uh, adaptive and sometimes maladaptive. Right? Uh, questions, comments on social roles and norms? Um, is, uh, I want to show you a little video clip, but I have to pause the uh, podcast for a second because it contains some profanity. So, uh, so what, uh, based on, uh, you know, what we've talked about in terms of social roles and social norms, what's your take on that whole Clip. I mean, I've been thinking. I've I, I've only I only saw it about first about uh, two hours ago, so I haven't had time to really think through it a whole lot. But what are your what's your take on that stuff? What's going on there? I really like the question that was asked: Why people want to subject themselves to that? Okay. So first, why do the customers want to step outside their normal social role as customers and welcome the abuse? 
Because it's not our normal role as customers to be abused by shop merchants, right? Well, it's, you know, amongst friends, you know, it's, there's a comfort level and the safety thing. If you don't know someone and they insult you, they, they're not usually joking with you because they don't know you. Okay. So, um, so among friends, being, you know, joking around, being insulting um, can be acceptable. So it may be one way for them to really, you know, feel like they're in this friendly community, right? Um, which, you know, it looks like at the, at the beginning of the night at least, right? So it may be, you know, this guy has this whole Freudian thing of, you know, they drink and they have guilt, so they want to be punished. And it's like, no, forget about it. Um, so what else? What else do you take out of that? Yeah. Okay, so we have these social roles, and we feel somewhat constrained by our social roles. And so it kind of feels good to step outside the role, knowing that the consequences won't be too bad. You know, I mean, we, I have a social role, which is, you know, not to go down into the hood and start insulting, you know, people that are um, Mexican or black or whatever, right? I'm a white boy, I'm gonna go down there, I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. And um, so, yeah, so it kind of gives these people the opportunity to kind of step out of that role for a bit, kind of play with the dynamics if the, if the social roles weren't enforced. What else? Yeah. Well, it seems like those who uh, took it too far have just been, you know, really, really wanting to insult somebody and they just didn't have any idea of the fun of it. They just, you know. Yeah. So we'll talk. We will. Yeah, we will talk about, a little bit later, we'll talk about the catharsis hypothesis. And the catharsis hypothesis suggests that, you know, if, if, you're, if you're into Freud, the, the, we have all these unacceptable uh, feelings in the id, and they kind, of, they kind of get stuffed down there, and the superego keeps them in bay, at bay. And, it, and if we let them bubble out, that they will somehow... Uh, you know, help us feel better, and we won't be as aggressive in the future. Um, which turns out the it's a catharsis hypothesis full of crap. But um, what else you take out of that? I think the biggest thing is for our culture is usually when you're getting harassed by people, it's usually by your friends. And if you they, if they didn't give you a hard time, it means they don't care. Okay. Okay. And so when you go to some place when they're razzing you, you know, lightly, then you're like, oh, that must be a friend. I'm feeling and like And then you get to break down the, hi, I'm, you know, and you're just like, oh, there, there's a little more of a trust, uh, trust is extended. Okay. Okay. You know, you're like, hey, I'm human, you're human, who cares? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think some people really do think, I mean, people do think that way. Okay. So you, 
you brought up the idea of um, inhibitions, right? Um, inhibitions. What is what is it that inhibits their behavior normally? Well, yeah, the operant conditioning, but we can say broadly this stuff, right? That helps inhibit, it helps keep their behavior in certain boundaries, right? Um, now, here's a funny thing. What happens when the people are drunk in this clip? So the inhibitions drop way down. So they start sort of getting a little, you know, they start pushing the boundary of the, of the norms and roles, right? And uh, why do they keep going, though? Because everybody around them supports it. In not a, you know, even if they're not directly participating, just their presence creates conformity, right? And all of a sudden, the conformity pressures start to take hold where the normal behavior is to engage, um, engage in these behaviors like this. Now, here's an interesting thing about alcohol and inhibition. The um, alcohol has something called a disinhibition effect. But the interesting thing is that for a reasonably large number of people, the disinhibition effect will kick in if they're in a party environment, even if they haven't had any alcohol. So if we give them a placebo alcohol, which we can make, looks like uh, vodka, tastes like vodka, smells like vodka, and we get them to think they've been drinking, we get the behaviors. So it's not actually the alcohol that's allowing them to become disinhibited. It's their own beliefs that allow them to drop their inhibitions, right? And the beliefs that this is normal behavior in this environment, right? So our social environment ex exerts an extraordinary amount of pressure uh, on our behaviors. Uh, anything else you want to bring up here? Yeah. Sure. Yep. That's true. Now, I will say that I'm not I don't I'm not ignoring the uh the weird dynamics of this restaurant with all white customers and all black people behind the counter, right? That's setting up this that's that starts to set up this weird dynamic anyway in itself, right? Mm -hmm. I would expect so if they could norm that behavior. I would say, yeah, I would say that that type of grabbing goes along no matter what culture I've ever. Yeah. No matter what, that's like you know, the one constant thing that happens. Your friends grab you and you build trust from that. And Ultimately, you know, the people behind the counter really do have the control. You know, if it if it goes too far, you know, they can shut the place down and call the cops, right? So it is. There is a certain amount of complicity going on between the uh, people in the behind the counter and the people in front. But be that as it may. All right. So um, so the other thing that we think about in social psychology is not just that stuff out there, but the stuff inside here, too. So um, the attitudes that we have 
and the behaviors that may um, be associated with those attitudes. So uh, when we think about attitudes, we generally tend to think of attitudes as having three different components. Um, one component of attitudes is stuff we think, right? It's cognitions we have about other people, about ourselves, about the situation. And these are r generally rational beliefs that we have. If they're irrational beliefs, then we're into abnormal psychology, and that's not the topic of this class. So. Um, feelings, basically emotions, affect. Um, and then uh, actions. So um, if attitudes sort of have all of this stuff, does uh, do behaviors result from attitudes, uh, or do attitudes result from our behaviors? Which way does it go? Yeah, give me an example of it going back and forth. Good. So our our actions, our our behaviors, can serve to strengthen our attitudes or our beliefs, um, and we do respond to things in our environment. We act we act out in behaviors as a product of our attitudes. So it really does go both ways, and in fact, sometimes when there's some inconsistency between our attitudes and our behaviors, we will change one or the other so that we bring it back into uh, consistency. We like to have consistency in our attitudes. We like to have consistency between our attitudes and our behaviors. And, uh, and we'll play all kinds of funny mind games to try to convince ourselves that there is consistency when there really isn't. But that's, um, we'll talk about that later. So um, classic example of this connection, that's where I lost my chapstick. <laughs> I'm going to throw it away. Classic, because I don't know where it's been. Classic example of this uh, connection is what happens uh, when you go to the um, used car salesman, and you're not really um, planning on buying a car, but somehow you wind up leaving the place with a car, and you really don't know how you got there, right? kind of like, well, I really wasn't going to buy a car when I got here, but now I got a car. How'd that happen? Um, and that's um, what's broadly kind of referred to as the foot in the door phenomenon. Because uh, if I were to come here, for example, if I were going to sell you some encyclopedias and I knocked on the door and you opened the door um, and I said, can I talk to you about my encyclopedias? And you say, no, go away. By the time you close the door, I got my foot in here. So... Oh, I can't go close the door. So now that one little concession, oh, I'm shaking the room, that one little concession allows the beginning of asking for a little bit more concession. So once uh, you come into my place and I give you a, if you're, you're my used car uh, store and I give you a soda, um, I'm, I'm, what's that? 
give them. Yeah, well, there you go. That's what happens. Reciprocity. Um, no, if the mouse gives you a cookie, then you want to give them a, a glass of milk. So no. So uh, so you go into the store, and uh, the salesman says, uh, you know, I know you don't want to buy a car today, but uh, tell you what, just um, let me show you this brand. You know, this uh, this shiny blue car I got out here. I think you'll really like it. And next time you come in, you'll like to see. And you go, well, I really don't have time to do that today. Well, um, just you know, just take a look at it, sit in it, see what you think. You go out there, you sit in it, and uh, salesman says, well, you know, uh, you know, we're having this great uh, promotion this week, and um, I could really put you in this car for a lot less money if, you know, you just come in the office and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll work something out. You say, well, I really don't want to buy a car. Well, just come on in the office, right? And so it kind of, it's this idea of kind of getting you to get used to the idea of going along. And now you're sitting in the office and you got the paperwork in front of you and you're thinking, I didn't really come here to buy a car, but I am sitting in the office. Either I'm a sucker and stupid, or I really do want to buy a car. So I'll say, well, maybe I, I can really do want to buy a car and not want to be a sucker and stupid. And so um, next thing you know, you're walking out of there with a used car and you hadn't really intended to. That doesn't mean that you don't need a car doesn't mean that a car wasn't a good deal, but these are ways of sort of getting you to change your attitude a little bit. And um, this, uh, the, the great ex another great example of this is what happens when we get people to do things that they really don't believe uh, are the right things to do. And how can we do that? And really, um, it relies on these same kinds of principles. Basically, um, you know, get someone to give some little concession, then ask them for a little bit bigger concession, and then ask them for a much bigger concession. And if you ease them into it, and you start changing their behavior, their attitude will follow. Because they don't want their attitude to be inconsistent with the behavior. And it's easier to change attitudes than behaviors in a lot of cases. Okay, and this is um, known as uh, cognitive dissonance theory, um, which we'll talk about later, I think. Um, you know, this is this is this example with the guard and the and the the soldier and the and we've got all kinds of other factors working here. For one thing, hierarchy, right? In militaries, there are hierarchies. And if your superior tells you to do something, you do it, damn it. And that's called obedience, right? And obedience is a good thing on the battlefield because you don't want someone to equivocate when you tell them to do something, right? Because you need to have them at the right place at the right time or else everything falls apart. But, um, uh, in these kinds of situations, it can set up the opportunity for really awful things to start happening too. Um, I'm not going to call that situation groupthink, uh, uh, but um, groupthink does have a lot of these same kinds of conformity pressures. It doesn't have so much of the obedience kind of pressures that but I just in, like what's in here. Right. So 
what will happen is if we're in a group of people and they start doing something that we think isn't the right thing to do, um, if they're unanimous, a lot of times we'll just go along with them because we like to get along with people. And it's easier to go along with them than to stand up and be the weirdo that says, hey, hey, stop, we're not doing that. You know, and then they start ridiculing you, right? And then you're like, all right. So incredibly strong pressures for conformity. Um, so as I said, um, if our attitudes are inconsistent, then something called cognitive dissonance occurs. And Leon Festinger um, proposed a theory to explain why, uh, how we deal with those kinds of inconsistencies in our beliefs. And he started this research. One of his first experiments was to go into a, um, one of these, um, uh, I think they're called millenarian cults. Anybody in religion here? No, study religion? Um, these are um, groups that believe the world is ending. Is that right? Apocalyptic kind of cults. And um, so uh, there was this group, I think they were in Colorado, and he and his, I think his research assistant, um, basically joined the group to find out how they worked and what happened when they predicted the world would end on February 15th and February 16th came along. How did they reconcile that inconsistency, right? And uh, what he found was that um, basically when their, when their attitudes became inconsistent, they started doing all kinds of things to try to um, explain it away and to try to um, try to bring their attitudes back into consistency. Um, and people who smoke go through this uh, all the time. You know, the classic example is smoking. Um, if I smoke cigarettes and I think that I'm the kind of person that doesn't really take unnecessary risks, right? I'm a just average Joe. You know, I don't drive at um, 90 miles an hour and jump off cliffs with uh, parachutes and stuff, right? I'm just, you know, just going through life, doing my thing. Um, but I also know from my learning that smoking causes cancer. So do you see the inconsistency there? So my behavior and my attitudes are inconsistent. So I'm going to have to do one of two things. Um, I'm... Uh, I'm either going to have to change my behavior or my attitudes. And I need to do that because, according to Festinger, what happens is we get this uncomfortable kind of feeling when um, we, we become uncomfortably aroused when we have these inconsistent attitudes. And we have to resolve that um, discomfort in some way. And to resolve that, as I said, we're going to have to change behavior or we're going to have to uh, change our attitudes. Well, the problem is that changing this behavior is difficult and some would say impossible um, because of the intensely addictive nature of nicotine, right? Um, it's an extraordinarily addictive drug. Um, nicotine, um, the crack form of cocaine, and heroin are probably the three most addictive uh, drugs that we have right now. And so, um, so if I can't change that, I'm going to have to change one of these, right? So either I'm going to have to 
start accepting that I am the kind of person who takes unreasonable risks. And if I think people who take unreasonable risks are not nice people, that's going to create a problem. So maybe I'll change this thought that smoking causes cancer. And I might say, well, you know, yeah, those doctors published all those studies, you know, those thousands of studies, but I won't say thousand. Those doctors published a few studies a long time ago that said smoking caused cancer. But you know what? I read an article just last week that said that apple pie causes problems in digestion. And then another study a week later that said apple pie is fine for you. So those doctors really don't know what they're talking about. They're always publishing contradictory studies, right? So uh, I can smoke. So you change this and you say, well, yeah, not really, right? Or you maybe just ignore it. Maybe think it's going to go away, go into denial, repression, right? If you want to be a Freudian about it, yeah. What's that? So if, uh, if, I, um, if I think that if I have this belief that, um, how would the cognitions uh, become inconsistent though? For uh, in the global warming example. Okay, so I believe that global warming uh, is a threat to humanity, okay? What's the other cognition that's inconsistent with that? Um, no? What's that? So, so I drive, I drive, so I drive a Hummer. Okay, start with the behavior. I drive a Hummer and I care about the environment. I'm a good citizen, I care about the environment. You know, I'd give money to the Sierra Club, I give money to the National Wildlife Foundation, right? I'm a good steward of the environment, but fossil fuel, burning fossil fuels increases global warming. Well, you know, I heard from the president that those scientists don't always know what they're talking about. He just said it last week. I heard him just like that. He said, those them scientists don't know what they're talking about. And I'm the president, so you should believe me. I come from Texas. I know about that stuff. So, guess what? I think the president's right. I believe my president. I'm a good citizen. Right? So, um, so yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. So the question is, is cognitive dissonance stronger in collectivist cultures? Um, here, here's, I, I just did some research on this this morning, and I haven't read the article yet, but from the abstract that I read, it's not that it's different, it's, it's fundamentally the same, but the way people change their beliefs is different in collectivist cultures. And what I mean by that is they typically will change their beliefs 
to feel as if they are doing the right thing in terms of um, their social group or their society. But uh, I'll know more about it when I get to read that article in detail. Yeah, I'll probably do that this weekend. So. Okay, but that's a good question. Something I thought of uh, while I was reading today and I actually looked it up. Okay, so we resolve this inconsistency uh, by uh, bringing our beliefs back into consistency. And so we can bring our beliefs back into consistency in one way by changing what we think or in another way by distorting the things that we think, distorting the evidence, not paying attention to evidence, right? We can use those biases to do that. We can use heuristics. And um, so in this example with smoking, we can reduce the cognitions we have about health risks. So maybe I just don't think about the health risks of smoking anymore. I enjoy it. Hmm? I enjoy it. Uh, you know what? My Uncle Jim smokes three packs a day. He's done that his whole life, and he's 80 years old. Right? We'll find instances that will help confirm our beliefs. Um, and so, uh, so this allows us, for one thing, to pay less attention to those uh, risk-relevant uh, cognitions, or we can interpret them as more or less accurate. So yeah, my, my Uncle Jim, he smoked three packs a day for, he's been alive for 80 years. That's, those studies really probably aren't very accurate. Or I can just say, well, you know what? I just don't choose to hear about it anymore. I'm just not going to pay attention. So we find all kinds of ways to help ourselves feel better and feel that our attitudes are more consistent with our behaviors. Um, questions on cognitive dissonance? And so that not only helps them feel good as an individual, it helps them, it helps those people feel good about these shared customs, these shared traditions, these shared foods that we've had for generations. And, um, and that provides, you know, there's some good things to this, right? It's not that it's always bad. It does give us some benefits, but it also sets us up for the possibility of creating a situation where we're going to create, um, what's going on? <laughs> what did I do? Is something happening over here? All right. Another one of those. Um, yeah, did you have a question, Bri Brianna? Yeah, uh, I was just going to ask, like, you do just, like, change your behavior, then do other cognitions come into place that you have to kind of go through this whole process again? Um, uh, no. Uh, really, you can change your behavior or you can change your cognitions, your attitudes. Um, Sometimes behaviors are easier to change, and sometimes attitudes are easier to change. 
And if you change your behavior so that it is consistent with your attitudes, then there's no more inconsistency. You don't have to do anything. Um, yeah. Individual differences, yeah. Um, there are conformity pressures in groups that are gonna that are gonna make it more difficult to do. But uh, yeah, yep. Uh, Frank. So the sun is like the what is it the, the arousal thing that you know it's on the, it seems logic based, and I'm wondering because I don't know why I'm maybe I'm drawing maybe I'm grasping straws, but I guess we know in history you see like really strange cultures that don't really make logical sense. And maybe it seems like they're—it's more back in history than now. And I'm wondering if they didn't—is it basically this is a function of logic through time of, of people being able to think of this? Oh, it really doesn't make sense. Then I got to change something. And before they wouldn't know because they wouldn't logic wouldn't be such a part of their lives. No, I don't think I don't think it's so much that. Um, you know, are you just talking about superstitious beliefs? Or? Well, I I guess I was just thinking of things that you know. Something that, I don't know, maybe some footnote in history that just sounds funny when you read it. Like, why would they do that? Because they believe, you know, it just sounds weird. And uh, so you think people with leeches, or are you thinking like something like I've been trying to think of it while everybody's talking. Like, I can't think of a single example, but it makes me think of this, and I'm thinking, well, maybe because logic wasn't so, I don't know, daily relevant or so important well, 3,000 years ago compared to now. Yeah. Well, you know, there is, um, there has been some benefit for, um, you know, in public education, one of the things that you're taught, well, hopefully, one of the things you learn is critical thinking. And in this class, certainly, you're, you're learning about the scientific method and how we test things and how we, you know, we don't just willy-nilly decide that, you know, leeches are going to cure cancer. You know, we have to have some basis for coming to that conclusion, right? Um, so yeah, so the the advancement of science and the advancement of critical thinking in education is certainly going to have some effects. But I don't know of any kinds of studies that have tried to look at that. But yeah, because it seems like it has a basic on logic. I wouldn't know any. That's the only subconscious thought process in humans that I can see that has some kind of basis on logic. Yeah, well, um, just because we do crazy things doesn't mean we're crazy. Oh, I didn't know that. Huh. Wow. Yep. 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 Um, social norms are going to have big effects on it. Um, 
you know, and then, you know, of course, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s, the doctors were actually telling people to smoke, but yeah, that's, that's another story altogether. Um, why don't we take a break? It's getting on 4 o'clock. I'm starting to run out of juice here. Um, about 10 minutes. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk about conformity. And uh, the research on conformity um, really takes off after World War II. And the social problem or the social question that really spurred some of the research on conformity and ultimately on obedience was uh, how could the regular everyday soldiers that were drafted uh, by the Nazis, you know, these are people off the street, um, just regular everyday people, how could they engage and be complicit in um, the atrocities that occurred during the Holocaust when somewhere between 11 and 13 million people were systematically mass murdered. Um, and so, uh, you know, of course, a lot of it came down to these people defended their actions by saying, well, uh, I was ordered to do it. And so uh, one of the proposals after the Nuremberg trials, when these people went on trial for war crimes, was look at all these Jap look at all these Germans who um, did this awful stuff, and all they could say was I was ordered to do it, and as we all know, um, Americans wouldn't do such a thing. They would defy these terrible orders. So it must be the German personality. There must be something about the you know intrinsic to Germans that would cause them to be able to do these awful things. Um, and of course, social psychologists are not particularly happy about this idea because we believe in the power of the situation over people's behavior more so than individual dispositions. And so uh, a social psychologist named uh, Solomon Ash decided to run a series of experiments to test um, what kinds of things would get people to go along with a group of other people. Um, how could I get you to go along with something when you really knew that what you were going along with uh, was not correct? So, uh, so he set up his experimental paradigm. Whoops, I'm not going to show you that. He set up his experimental paradigm, and uh, he set it up uh, as a line-length perception experiment. So he uh, advertised for subjects, and they were going to come into a lab and do some line-length perception stuff. And what he did was he had seven subjects. One of those, uh, sub one of those people was the actual subject. The other six were, uh, in social psychology, we use the term confederates of the experimenter. They were going along with the experimenter. They were in on the, uh, on the whole thing with the experimenter. And the idea was that all of these confederates, except for the subject, would agree on the line length. And sometimes they would agree 
that the correct line was the line that was supposed to be answered, and sometimes they would use the wrong answers. Now, the easiest thing to do for me is to show you kind of how this works. And so uh, I dug up a little video clip, uh, and it was done probably, judging by the clothes, I think it was done in like the mid-70s, you know, really bad clothes in the mid-70s. And it's a little cheesy in parts, but I think it gives you the idea of how this experiment was run. So uh, I'll let you watch that. The experiment you'll be taking part in today involves the construction ah! of lengths of lines. As you can see here, I have a number of cards, and on each card there are several lines. Your task is a very simple one. You're to look at the line on the left and determine which of the three lines on the right is equal to it in length. All right, we'll proceed in this order. Only one of the people in the group is a real subject, the fifth person with the white t-shirt. The others are confederates of the experimenter and have been told to give wrong answers on some of the trials. The experiment begins uneventfully as subjects give their judgments. Two, 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 three, 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 three. But on the third trial, something happens. denies the evidence of his own eyes and yields to group influence. One. Ash found subjects went along with the group on 37% of the critical trials. One. But he found through interviews One. that they went along with the group for different reasons. One. One. They must be right. There are four of them and one of me. One. This subject's yielding is based on a distortion of his judgment. He genuinely believes that the group is correct. So, uh, so what he finds is that about a third, uh, about a third of the time they would go along. Now, the way that the experiments actually ran, this is a little oversimplified. What happened was typically people would fight the group for the first few times, 
and then they would eventually start just going along with the group. Um, so people do put up a resistance to these conformity pressures, um, but eventually if the pressure is strong enough mm -hmm. and if the right conditions are present, uh, they'll still go along with it. Um, now, uh, the thing is that if we say that only 33% were willing to go along uh, with the group, that means that 67% of the time they decided not to. Um, now, as I said, that may be because at the beginning they kind of started fighting things and then eventually they just give in. But there's also the idea that um, we're all individuals. And so whenever we're studying a phenomenon in social psychology, we're also very careful to know that there are individual differences between people. For example, uh, in the personality topic, we talked about locus of control. That's an, that's an example of an individual difference um, that'll, that will act as a moderator on how you, be, how you respond to a particular situation. So uh, what, uh, what Ash, Ash then took this experiment, he started running a bunch of variations on the experiment to find out what the, um, what the situational influences were that would uh, increase conformity. And he found that uh, one thing that will increase conformity a lot is when the other participants are part of the subject's in-group. And an in-group is basically people that are like you. So let's say that um, if we brought a bunch of people in and you know we had the subject and the six confederates and they were all from the same fraternity, right? Um, those, those, 